beloved listeners, we tend not to talk about uh, books and war in the same breath. One ranks among humanity's greatest inventions, the other amongst its most terrible. But our next guest, Andrew Pettigree, is about to tell us how he believes books and war have always been interconnected. The pedigree pedigree is very impressive. Andrew is Professor of Modern History at the University of St Andrews, a leading expert on the history of books and libraries. I last talked to Andrew back in April 2020 when he came on the program to talk about the Bookshop of the World, a fascinating tome that explored the golden age of Dutch publishing. Now he's back to tell us about his new book, The Book at War, which tells a somewhat darker tale of how reading has shaped and been shaped by conflict. Andrew's on the blower now from Scotland. Welcome back. Andrew, you've written extensively about books and libraries, What inspired you to start thinking about uh, what happens to books in times of war? Well, thank you for that kind introduction and the invitation to return to talk to your listeners again. Well, it was, I suppose, two things. Uh, One was uh, with my colleague, Arthur de Vedran, with whom I wrote the Bookshop of the World. We also wrote a history of libraries following on from that project. And in this history of libraries, we uh, drifted into the 20th century um, when the library movement really took off. But we also had to deal with the problems that libraries have faced in the 20th and 21st century, not least bombing. And so we did have a chapter in that book about the destruction wrought on library stock by intensive carpet bombing, by, on occasions, deliberate uh, destruction, and also by looting, particularly uh, by the Nazi regime in Germany, which at one point occupied most of the land space of Europe. But I thought, well, hold on, yes, this is a very interesting story, but there's, I think, a great deal more to it. And in my book, The Book at War, I raise the issue that books were not just victims. They were not just innocent victims in wartime. They were also, as President Franklin D. Roosevelt said, Books are weapons in the war of ideas. And that's a very important point to keep in mind. He said something else wonderful about books, but I'm going to save that to the end of our conversation. But you tell me that almost 500 million books were lost, destroyed or abandoned during the fighting in Europe. Quote, the libraries of Berlin, Warsaw, Munich, uh, Minsk will never be the same again. And yet... You also asked the question, was the bombing of libraries, the destruction of books, always a tragedy? That's a a provocative question. Well, it is. um, But I should also say that of that uh, 500 million, at least 150,000 were books uh, given up by their authors to be sent for recycling uh, to be involved in the war effort. Um, The salvage operation in Britain, something like 60 million books were given up by their owners. Because one of the things about 
total war, warfare in which the whole populations feel involved and are involved by dint of uh, of long-range bombing, um, people want to be involved. They want to do their bit. And giving up books for pulping and recycling is one way you can do that. And interestingly, we're also seeing that in the Ukraine war as well. Ukrainian citizens giving up their Russian language books for re recycling as a form of gesture of solidarity. We'll go back to the Ukraine later, but uh, as you say, should we lament the loss of, uh, well, nine million copies of Mein Kampf circulating <laughs> in Germany or the hundred million copies of Mao's Little Red Book? Yes, well, I'm of a generation that can remember uh, being at school and uh, at a point where if you wrote a polite letter to the a Canadian embassy in London, they'd send you a free copy. And this was thought of as being an extremely naughty thing to do. So, of course, there were a lot of copies around at my school at that time. But one of the interesting things I found um, writing this book was that the Second World War particularly, you know, the first war in which almost all of the troops involved were literate, and many were volunteers. And so, Actually, their opinions mattered in these things. But this was the first war in which almost all of the main leaders, wartime leaders, were themselves best-selling authors. You've mentioned uh, Hitler's Mein Kampf, uh, a bestseller, not only actually in Germany, but in its first uh, English translation, which was widely read in America and uh, the United Kingdom. And indeed, the governments encourage people to read it on the grounds that uh, the more they read of it, the more malicious and mad they would find it and the more committed they would be to the war effort. I, I remember when Hugh Trevor Roper was, uh, well, the famous historian, was somewhat embarrassed by uh, his involvement in the Hitler's diary scam. But uh, when he was an intelligence officer during the war, he said that 90% of the useful info came from open sources like newspapers, telephone directories and maps. Yes, indeed. And that was an important insight of Trevor Roper's. I would say in the, in the war, uh, the most important sources of intelligence, and this is one uh, place where books played a really important role, uh, the most important sources were radio intercepts, uh, prisoner interrogation, and open source material like newspapers, like guidebooks, like telephone directories. You could learn a lot from reading even censored newspapers uh, in wartime. It was also quite important because whereas um, academic scientists played an incredibly important uh, part in, in war, not least in developing new weapons like the atomic bomb, but this gave academics in the humanities subjects their opportunity to play their part. And many of them served in a very distinguished way as intelligence officers, not least Hugh Trevor Roper. 
I uh, learned from you, in fact, the book is full of what could be characterized as fun facts, that when the Americans were attacked at Pearl Harbor, they put out an appeal for anyone who had books about the Pacific Islands because they had no idea about the places they'd be sending troops. Well, exactly that. And uh, after the end of the war, the Librarian of Congress, Archie Mer- Uh, McLeish uh, made a very important speech where he said no nation can now go to war without the most complete library resources. But that's precisely how they found themselves in 1939 uh, and then in the American case in 1941, going to war, knowing very, very little about these islands and uh, atolls where they would fight these most bloody battles, and yet they had very little information on them at all. Andrew, you say that it's no coincidence that the major wars of the 19th and 20th centuries were fought between the world's most bookish nations. Mm. Yes. um, Britain, through the... British Empire had an enormous publishing industry and was providing uh, books and uh, other types of print all over the world. So it was was a huge industry. Germany, on the other side, was one of the, had had one of the highest literacy rates of any country. And of course, an important network of technical universities. In academic studies by the early 20th century, being able to speak German or read German was almost a requirement in many disciplines. So important was um, the uh, academic culture in this new great power. France, of course, well known as one of the most uh, cultured of nations. Um, I would say at this point, the United States was something of a sleeping giant. And it was only the First World War Uh, which for most of it, they were sitting it out before they joined the fighting in 1917. And and they were able to take take advantage of the fact that the European nations were so preoccupied. One one of the combatant nations, the old Russia, didn't have a very high literacy rate. And that was something that uh, Lenin tackled as soon as he, uh, as soon as the Bolshevik revolution. Yes, and that was perhaps the greatest achievement of the first uh, decades of the uh, of of the uh, of the Soviet Union. I mean, Lenin had himself spent years and years in exile on a sort of peregrination, which seemed to take him to to Europe's most bookish places. Uh, particularly in Zurich. He he spent a lot of time in the library writing, thinking. And so when he returned, he'd had a personal experience of what this public library network in the Western parts of Europe could really offer and insisted that an immediate effort be made to improve library uh, provision, to improve education, and to provide working-class access to Russia's universities, and in all three respects, he succeeded. 
I'm well aware of the fact that uh, Winston Churchill was a best-selling author and we've already discussed uh, Hitler's impressive sales, but I had no idea that Stalin was a prodigious reader. Yes, this, he's, he's the surprise package here. But Stalin and Mao were, were both, uh, both country boys um, and brought up in uh, far from ad- advantaged circumstances. Um, so Mao at the local public library, uh, Stalin uh, at school read deeply into the political thought of, of, of Western culture. Um, Stalin was a, a published poet at the age of 17, <clears throat> and had he not become a revolutionary, it had been his intention to become an academic. And At how one stage, would... he flirted with the priesthood. That's right. I mean, how different was... Uh, would European history been if he'd followed his first intentions? Yeah, so Stalin was a prodigious reader. I understand, well, I learned from you, he had 15,000 books in his private library. Yes. In fact, most of the um, leaders of the um, first Soviet regimes uh, assembled very considerable libraries. Um, But, of course, in a way... Uh, Marxism is the most bookish of ideologies, and it's probably the the, the only I- example you can have where a whole school of thought, which has actually conquered a large part of the globe, uh, came out of books. I must see if I can track down a copy of Charles de Gaulle's fine book about tanks, but uh, he was also a, a lifelong reader. He was. He was a reader, but as you say, also a writer. And so if you go round the major war leaders of the Second World War, we have uh, only FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, as uh, the only one who didn't write a very substantial contribution to the literature. He was more a newspaper man. And as we find very much the master of the pithy phrase and uh, also a book collector. So that they all had libraries was not a surprise. But as you say, I mean, uh, Churchill lived by his writing for, for 40 years before he became prime minister. And continued to do so after and gets himself a Nobel Prize for literature. Indeed. And that's uh, very significant. And uh, I, I, I sometimes imagine how angry that would have made Hitler had he lived to see it. <laughs> going, back, going back to Mao, before he was chairman, here he is working as a lowly, a lowly assistant in a, in a library, but he's, um, he's reading extensively. He's reading Rousseau. He's reading uh, Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's amazing that in a relatively distant part of of china he could find those those books in the local regional library in 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 translation um so yes i mean he he was but i suppose if you look back to less privileged ages before uh, our own and also to places which have relatively low levels of uh, of literacy like china at that time, the the number of self-educated people would be very much larger than it is today when universal education is, is the expectation in, in most parts, parts of the world. 
L.N.L. on R.N. and I'm talking for the second time to uh, literary historian Andrew Pettigrew about his new book, The Book at War. Now, the book's not just about books, but all kinds of uh, printed material. Tell us about leaflets and the role they played in, well, in different wars. Yes, I've I've allowed my my range to 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 be broad here in what I regard as part of book culture. Uh, this encompasses not only books as we think of them, but also pamphlets, leaflets, newspapers, and posters. Um, the written word played a much more important role than just the books people owned in wartime. You couldn't walk a hundred meters in a, in an urban environment without seeing some poster warning you to do something, warning you to not to do something, advising you uh, where to be in the case of air raids and so on and so forth. But quite a lot of airmen in both the Luftwaffe and the RAF spent. Uh, large amounts of their time in the first year of the war dropping leaflets on each other. Uh, in the German case in 1940, trying to persuade um, the British public that it was hopeless to continue the war after the fall of France. In the uh, British case, uh, leafleting Germany at the beginning of the war to say, we have no we have no beef with the German people. We know that it's just this uh, group of thugs called the Nazis who are your rulers and you would like to get rid of them. Why don't you do it? I um, also remember both sides dropping leaflets containing uh, the quatrains of Nostradamus. They were used as propaganda. <laughs> well, yes, I mean, they, they kept at, at it all through, through, through the war, particularly in 1944 in occupied France, when the Allies were, were dropping a daily newspaper, a daily German newspaper, saying it's not going very well for you guys. And a large proportion of the prisoners uh, taken during the um, breakout from Normandy in, in 1944 were found to have copies of this in, in, uh, in their pockets. And indeed, some <laughs> German, German prisoners of war, when they were in Allied hands, would say, sorry, I haven't seen yesterday's edition, as if they were <laughs> regular subscribers. Another fun fact. Please tell the listener about the, uh, the Cold War's uh, Bible Balloon Project. <laughs> Yes, I, I have a longish chapter towards the end of the book on on the on the Cold War, um, which which I call "Peace as War" because um, you know the the Cold War was um, a very active time in printed propaganda on both sides, and this included a CIA initiative to float balloons over the Iron Curtain into Germany and Czechoslovakia. And when the balloons ran out of puffs, this would deliver a Bible. Uh, but of course, um, most of these dry, uh, dropped harmlessly in the Czech countryside.
countryside um, <laughs> uh, to be picked up by baffled shepherds. Uh, and in the end, the Czech government wrote to the Americans and said, look, you're just, you, this is just a litter problem. Please stop. <laughs> of course, the CIA were very active in print. I well remember the era when they were subsidising Encounter in the UK mm-hmm. and the magazine Quadrant in Australia. Yes. Now, that was, um, I would say, a very considerable scandal when it first became known, because apart from a small group of the editorial board, and some of them claimed to know nothing about it, people did not realise that the CIA was uh, subsidising uh, literature like this, the, these journals on a, on a huge scale. Um, and... It wasn't a very direct form of propaganda because these these magazines were not reaching uh, the Russian subject nations. Um, but it's extraordinary that they thought this was worth doing, and particularly because Encounter had a had a reputation of being slightly left leaning. Okay, now there are some interesting stats in your book showing that civilians were actually reading less in wartime than troops were reading. That's a paradox. Well, it it, it, it is and it isn't. I mean, one, one of the things that I do did, did develop at length in this book is the extent to which war changes not only what is read, but who reads, who reads. Because war is a difficult period for publishers. They often have very limited uh, paper supplies. All the paper coming into Britain had to be imported. So it was a very dangerous thing to, to do this. And, uh, and so paper rations were very small. Authors had a very difficult, a tough time too. What should they do? Should they join the forces or should they continue to write books? Um, and also, it, I think particularly for women, they often found that they just didn't have the time in war time for reading that they would have had in times of peace. They're very often doing voluntary jobs, working in, in uh, government restaurants, for instance. They started to uh, have a vegetable garden very often households which had previously had a cook or a maid or a gardener found that the lady of the house was cleaning and cooking for the very first time in her life. So the time that had been given to reading just disappeared for many people at home. You cite paper shortages, and that, of course, reminds me of the great story of the paperback and Penguin. Well, um, it's 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 a fortuitous coincidence that the years before the war, in the build-up to war, were really also the beginning of the paperback revolution, uh, and this meant that uh, relatively recent fiction published in Penguin, um, you could have fifteen Penguin books for the price of one new hardback novel. So this made it much easier for people to buy not only recent fiction, but also um, relatively small uh, 
books in Penguin's uh, current affairs series on they they were called Penguin specials uh, on the on the uh, impending crisis and then non-fiction books during the war comment on the war so people could buy these books for six months the then cost of a packet of cigarettes and they could um, read it and then it was very disposable. So they were far, far more flexible, particularly when they were being carried abroad by by, by troops, uh, than the hardback books, which had been their, their lot in, in the First World War. So the paperback revolution was a very important component of how books were read in the Second World War. Now, reading was so prevalent amongst uh, American troops that in 1945, the New York Post declared that the uh, the US had the best read army in the world. What approach did the government take when um, coming to select books for the American service editions? Well, the American service editions was alongside... Uh, Penguin, which of course was a, a private firm, alongside that, this was one of the most remarkable initiatives of the war. Um, the American uh, army was 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 often referred to as civilians in uniform. These were people who had given up their their occupations to to go fight, and yes, it was the most literate army in the world. Not least because illiteracy was a, a, a if you were demonstrated to be illiterate, you very often would be refused uh, entry to, to the armed forces. Um, and so the the uh, army and the navy between them came up with a venture called the Armed Service Editions, which would be um, titles chosen by a, a committee, a wide range of fiction or uh, a smaller range of non-fiction, which were published in large editions and then distributed to the troops free of charge wherever Andrew, they how, were serving. That committee was was pretty smart. I mean, it's such an eclectic group. You're not surprising to see Walt well, Dickens, Thackeray, Conrad, perhaps Voltaire, but heavens above, you've got Hemingway, you've got Steinbeck, you've even got Dorothy Parker. Yes, and actually also a, a, a range of uh, English authors as, as well uh, and, and bestsellers like A.J. Cronin, uh, C.S. Forrester of the, um, of the Hornblower novels. He was one of the most printed in this series. And it amounted by the time the, 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 the project was wound up, I think in 1946, it amounted to over a thousand titles and up 120 million copies. Wow. You tell an interesting story about F. Scott Fitzgerald and uh, The Great Gatsby. Yes, The Great Gatsby, which is now regarded as one of the, the classics of, of American literature, hadn't actually succeeded very, very well on its first publication. But um, you have to remember that you know in in, in wartime it's it's uh, often consists even for the frontline troops of uh, short periods of, of of terrifying activity, but long periods of boring waiting. So this was the time to settle down with a serious book, and a lot of uh, the American troops found themselves being readers for the very first time. Uh, and was 
what was true of them was even more true, I have to say, of prisoners of war who had the boredom but without the fighting. Well, let's go back to Ukraine. You say that Ukraine, in terms of weaponry, is a very 21st century war, but it's been 20th century in its impact on books and literary culture. Yes, I mean, this was this was a, a very surprising thing when I started uh, reading the first books on, on, on the war in the Ukraine. But, you know, all the elements I'd found in my writing about the 20th century were still there. Um, you see people abandoning their libraries as they fled uh, westward away from the Russian troops. 300 libraries were destroyed in, in, in the first year of the war. In the areas occupied Russia, the Ukrainian books uh, were being thrown, thrown out to be replaced by Russian books. There's even evidence that the Russian gov government subsidized a series of anti-Ukrainian novels in Russia to to prepare their population for thinking of their Ukrainian neighbors in in, in different ways, um, and public libraries also played their role um, in, in the western part of the country. When the refugees fled west, the public libraries put on uh, courses in the Ukrainian language. Because we have to remember that something like a third of the population of uh, of Ukraine were native Russian speakers at the beginning of the war. I want to end with a, a quote of Roosevelt, and this is something he uh, said in 1942, and I must congratulate his speechwriter. We all know that books burn, yet we have the greater knowledge that books cannot be killed by fire. People die, but books never die. And that's pretty much the theme of your book. It is. And I think here that one has to understand the important role that private collections play in, in this process. Um, because you, a, an authoritarian regime can deem that an author has gone out of favour and, uh, and legislate that his books be removed from public libraries. But 90% of the copies will be in on the shelves of people like you and me. And it's much, much more difficult to dispose of those. So although a lot of libraries will have been destroyed in Ukraine because they're in cities that have been destroyed, reconstituting those collections will still be possible. And that, I think, is a very hopeful note with which to stop. Thanks for that, uh, Andrew. Andrew Pettigree is Professor of Modern History at the University of St Andrew, and I recommend his new book highly. It's called The Book at War, Libraries and Readers in an Age of Conflict, and it's published by Profile Books. Well, thanks very much. That's been a lot of fun. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.